I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at sacred scripture through the lens of our Catholic tradition, a tradition that goes back to the apostles and to our blessed Lord Himself. And we also are looking at scripture through the lens of praying scripture, making it the meat of our prayer. Now, we'd love to have you become part of the show by adding your questions or comments. You can send us your questions via email by writing to Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com or follow us and participate on Facebook and YouTube. So, Today we are taking a look at our Lord's desire for solitude in prayer and the importance of that prayerful relationship with His Father and how it evoked what's almost a selfish desire among the people of Capernaum. They wanted to keep him with them for more miracles and who knows what they're looking for. And we'll also try to take a look at how this should cause us to examine our own conscience. Taking a look at our desires and motives, not only on the outside, the initial motives we might have, but getting more deeply into it. Now, we are going through a book that I wrote called Praying the Gospels, Jesus' Miracles in Galilee. Now, you can get that at EWTNRC.com. That's Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, where it's item number 52885. 52885. Now, in this, we are taking a look at this, uh, a second meditation about our Lord having gone off to pray. We already had that, and we are looking at Luke chapter 4, verse 42, the second half of that verse. It begins, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Okay? So this is what we see our Lord doing. Now, we have here that, again, emphasize this, that Jesus' private prayer is a time of solitude with his heavenly Father. He's spending time with his Father. And if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, when our Lord said, go into an inner room and pray alone with your Father, he did it himself. He's not just giving some general principle. It was rather a principle he himself followed. And that's very important that we learn from his example. 
And he seeks a fullness from the Father that draws him to take the next stage in his mission. Because remember, he's on a mission. Mission means to be sent out. And this is where you go when you're sent out. You go on mission. And it's very important <coughs> to keep in mind that he was sent by the Father. And he wants to stay in communion with the Father who sent him into the world to become man and redeem the human race. So, this is very important. Now, the people feel a certain type of absence of Jesus. And they didn't want him to go away at all. They wanted to keep on to him. And notice that St. Luke, at this point, describes them as the people. They are not called disciples. A disciple is someone who is being taught by a teacher. And especially in this world, you know, that of the, the ancient world, you would choose a teacher and learn everything you could from that teacher. That's why it's very important for any of you who are preparing to go off to college. I strongly recommend that you never take a class, or I don't say never on this, but rarely take a class because it has a cool title. Always find out from your fellow students what kind of teacher it is. And when you find a good teacher, take everything that teacher has to offer. This is advice from someone who went to school for a lot of years. I eventually graduated after I got to the 27th grade. I'm a slow learner. And I learned the importance of that, that the teacher is more important than the course title. You learn from that person as much as you can. Okay? So that's what people did in those days. They would attach themselves to a teacher and disciples would just stay with the teacher. But they're called the people here because they had not yet made a commitment to Jesus Christ. All they had done is seen the miracles he had already done or the teaching and, and, and such that he, they had heard, and they just wanted more of that, and especially the healings and exorcisms that had already seen that take place. And they knew that they had a good thing going on for them. I mean, demons are being cast out. People who are oppressed by the demons have a terrible difficulty. Why, matter of fact, I, I remember I had a course in um, uh, demonology and exorcism 
when I was in seminary. At a, again, a teacher, uh, he was getting elderly and didn't teach much, but I wanted to learn everything I could from him. And I took that course, and one of the questions he posed was, why does a demon possess somebody if the person is not culpable for the bad things they do because the demon has control of their will. That's what goes on in true possession, that the demon has control of the will. So if the person isn't committing a sin, then why would a demon bother to possess somebody? And as we thought about it and took time and studied various cases of possession and exorcism, the conclusion that he helped us reach, and I think is the right one, is that the demon always wants to distort the image and likeness of God that human beings are made in. God made us in his image and likeness. And the, the antics of the demon distorts that image. Now, even when somebody is not possessed, but is doing evil things, think about how they are doing the same. They are distorting the image and likeness of God. Think about that. That's what Hitler did. He put numbers on people, gave them all the same kind of clothes, destroyed their uniqueness from the outside anyway, and then killed them, about 10 million. That's how many people he killed altogether, Jewish people and others. And the same thing with the distortion of the human person by Marxists. They kill, that's why they killed 61 million people, 61.9 million in Soviet Union, maybe 90 million in China, and they're still doing it. They're doing it to the Uyghur Muslims to this day in China. So they, these are demonic distortions. And think about how people say falsely that, well, a fetus in the womb is just a blob of cells. No. It's a unique individual with unique DNA and fingerprints and all the rest. They, they, it's a distortion of the human that they try to pass on. That's the demonic quality. And this is what Jesus was undoing, as well as healing the sick and the lame and the blind and restoring them to health. So they hoped that if Jesus stayed with them, he'd keep doing miracles. He would keep doing these miracles and take care of all their other needs, maybe. So um, this is something that was perhaps lurking in their own minds, that they had an idea, well, if people hear about Jesus doing all these miracles, they'll come from other towns to Capernaum. And we can make a good business here. That might also be, you know, something that would be behind their attitude.
And so here we see that they want to stay uh, or keep Jesus with them. Um, and whatever their motives, it was not motivated by desire to do the will of the Heavenly Father. While Jesus is motivated by that, they, I mean, and they might even have had certainly great motives like gratitude for what Jesus had done. They might have been starting to like him more and more. And they want, plus some of the more self-centered concerns. But that's not what Jesus came for. He came to do the will of the Father. So here's something that I recommend that we ought to examine our own consciences. Take a look at our desires and our motives at various points in our own vocation. If you have a vocation to religious life, to the priesthood, a vocation to marriage and to being parents, you probably have a variety of motives. That's part of human life. You know, we're animals. We, we have an animal quality to us, which means we're very emotional, and emotions change constantly. They're always changing. You feel really angry one moment and feel real loving. I mean, think about your kids, you know, if you have children and how they can just drive you nuts and then they do something absolutely charming and melt your heart. And these different feelings come and go and we have different motives. Sometimes we want them to make us proud. Sometimes we want what's best for them. Most of the time, I, I hope parents want what's best for them. But some parents can get caught up in things like um, trying to make sure my child is, is a success. That'll reflect well on me. And as well as what is going to, success going to mean for my child. I mean, all these different motives come into our vocations. Same thing with our spouses. That if you have a spouse, you know, you have, oh, I, I want uh, a, a, to marry a woman who's just going to be beautiful and a great cook and take care of the children, do all this, or have success in a wonderful career or um, develop an education. I want to help my spouse find her education or his education and become great. And sometimes I also want to make sure that I get benefits. I want to be rich. I want to have an easier life. I want to have some nice things. I want to get some good vacations. And our motives are mixed. An examination of conscience is very important to help sort through the variety of motives that we have inside of us the variety of things we desire. And we want to sort them out and then evaluate them. Not all of our desires are worthwhile. 
some of them are problematic. Some of them are very selfish. And one goal for us in contemplating this is to seek to purify our motives and desires, to make them more in line with our Lord Jesus so that I want to do the will of the Father. I pray they are Father every day, multiple times, at Mass and the Rosary and so on. And I pray thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I need to purify my own motives. And that means a very honest examination of conscience about our motives. Do we uh, ask ourselves some questions? Do we cling to recent successes and say, well, that's it. I, I want to stay in Capernaum. We've got a great gig going on here. We've got miracles and exorcisms. It's, oh, it's fantastic. Do we want to stay with that recent success? Or are we willing to risk and move beyond to the next step that our Lord wants? Do we fear leaving the satisfaction we might have at this stage and take a risk to go to another level of service of God and neighbor? Do we try to have control over life and make sure that it goes my way instead of God's way? Do I have selfish motives mixed in? And that applies not just to family people, married people, to clergy as well. All kinds of selfish motives can get in. Well, I should at least be a monsignor, if not a bishop. You know, we call that scarlet fever. Um, because I want to wear the scarlet of a bishop. Do we let our Lord Jesus lead us to the next stage of doing the will of the Father here on earth? And do we have confidence that by following the Father's will, he'll lead us to heaven? Contemplate some of those things and pray about those things. And imagine your various desires being like that crowd of people coming at you from different sides. And conclude by saying to our Father, with a special focus on Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whereas, if you let it be, let my will be done on earth as it will be in hell. That's the choice. Let thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, or let my own will be done on earth as it will be in hell. That's the choice. Take a break. We'll come back and take a look at how our Lord clarifies his mission. So please stay with us.
right, welcome back. We are now ready to take a look at the third meditation that I did about this passage. And this is where Jesus, our Lord, clarifies his mission to the people. Let's take a look at Luke 43 to 44. But Jesus said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he continued proclaiming the message in the synagogues of Judea. So first he has a very clear sense of his purpose. This came to him from his prayer. That clear purpose is that the, uh, it comes to him from the Father, the Father who sent him to become flesh here on earth in the womb of Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin. And this purpose is not part of a career that he's trying to choose and develop for himself. It's obedience to the will of the Father. And this very, very clear understanding of doing the, being sent by the Father and doing the Father's will permeates all of the Gospels, not only the first three, which we call the synoptics. Synoptic means, you know the word optical, right? Uh, uh, optics have to do with what you see. So synoptics is they see Jesus from roughly the same perspective. They look at these different episodes. Whereas St. John's Gospel is very differently written and has this uh, other perspective. It was written a bit later than the others and probably in the 90s uh, AD. And so uh, in, we see in John's Gospel, as well as the synoptics, uh, that he came to do the will of the Father. He said in John 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. And that sense of complete means to finish the work. You know, that um, if you remember... Go, even going back to Genesis chapter 1, that the Lord finished his work and yet he rested. And then uh, after that, the humans sinned. And <clears throat> the goal, God made human beings in his image and likeness. And again, it's not only the demonic that distorts the image and likeness of God, it's our sin and disobedience of God that distorts the image and likeness of God. We don't always need the demon to do that. He does, there's no doubt. But we also sin and disobey God's commandments. And that's where um, we have to do that. So his goal of completing the work of God is to restore us to the image and likeness 
we were created to become. That's what we're made to do, to be in the image and likeness of God. And our Lord says that this is his food, what nourishes and motivates and keeps him going is doing the will of the Father. And he compares to seeking the Father's will rather than his own as being like eating his daily bread. And that should remind us of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, certainly we do understand that to refer to depending on God's providence on a daily basis, to be sure. But that daily bread has something more to it. And this is, uh, it, it, it includes doing the will of the Father, but also remember how our Lord quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, when the devil was tempting him. And he said, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That the, the Lord wants us to be nourished by the word of God and nourished by doing the will of God. And that's part of our daily bread. We also see that our Lord is motivated and enabled to keep going on to the next stage of his mission. It's made possible by doing the Father's will. That's why he said in John chapter 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek to do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So this doing of the Father's will empowers and enables Jesus to keep going on in his mission, including to judge our souls as part of his task as well. And this is something that we see as he goes all the way to Gethsemane. We see in John chapter 18, verse 11, when Peter takes a sword out and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, our Lord says to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? So he had spent time praying in Gethsemane. He didn't want to die, but he prayed, not my will, but thy will be done. And as it was clear to him that the Father's will was to, uh, that he would be arrested and die for the sake of humanity, he went on. And this is uh, also, and a lot of people get very confused by this, 
they sometimes think, well, does that mean that God the Father enjoys Jesus' suffering? That's his will, so he likes it? And they come up with this twisted idea that the Father wants Jesus to go through misery and impose, and, they, and of course they would rebel against that kind of idea, as they should. That's not what's going on here. It's not that the Father has this kind of evil. See, that's an evil desire. I want to see him suffer. No, 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 no. But he is a father, like many of you out there are fathers and mothers who send your children off to battle. Do you send them off to fight in the military? Because you want to see them suffer. You want to see them get hurt. Then they'll know what pain is like. That's not what you want. You're proud of them because they're willing to learn the skills to defend our country. And you send them off. But you do so with great trepidation. You don't want them to suffer, but you know they might. So also, God the Father sent his son to engage Satan in battle, not only with the temptations right after Jesus' baptism, but also all the way to the point of death. That's where he has his final battle against Satan and defeats him. This is key. Now, Jesus, our Lord, expresses the goal of doing the Father's will. In John 6, verses 38 to 40, where he's teaching about the Eucharist, but this also explains why he does the will of the Father. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. That's the will of the Father. And Jesus' will is at one with his Father's will. He wants very much to redeem us. That's why St. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That this is why Christ was willing to die for us. And it requires faith in the Son of God. You have to, all who come to him and believe in him, and then our Lord says, I will raise them up on the last day in John 6, verse 40, as we just saw. And this is something where we need to see the Jesus of the gospel in order to believe him. Not a false Jesus. Not a false Christ from some false gospel. There are a lot of false gospels with false Christs in them. But in, the, in these gospels that come to us from the apostles, we learn about Christ. 
And that's why St. Paul wrote in Romans 10, verses 14 to 15, how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? He's talking about the Gentiles. How are they supposed to believe in Jesus? And many Jewish people in his day, did. how are they supposed to call on them? And how are they to believe in one whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That we are sent to preach this Jesus of the gospel, the real Christ, and not some other Christ of our own making, one that's more palatable to our culture or something. Even many of the Christian churches and many people inside Catholicism as well as outside are coming up with false Christs who are not the Christ of the gospel. And we cannot follow that. We have to follow Jesus, our Lord, who does the will of his Father, goes throughout Galilee, and proclaims the good news of the kingdom. As we saw in Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is our task to proclaim that. And then he will, and also Mark 1, 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. The Lord Jesus who calls the world to repent and believe is the one we preach. And then it's not, you know, just my idea that you should go out. Our Lord called his disciples to do the same, to follow the Father's will and proclaim the gospel so that uh, they have to give the same message as Jesus did. He said this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7 and 8. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Same thing our Lord said. He said, cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. This is what they are sent to do. Same thing in Luke chapter 10, verse 9 to 11. Cure the sick who are there. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. This is a very important part of how we are to preach. And not only was that something our Lord said during his public ministry, but after his death and resurrection and right before his ascension, he said to the apostles in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He commissions them right before he ascends into heaven. <clears throat> now, we can reflect on how this passage in Luke 4, 43-44, is teaching us these basic elements of the Lord's Prayer. Very important for us to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so, before Jesus taught the disciples the prayer that the Father's will is to be done here on earth and in heaven, Jesus demonstrated how he had to fulfill the Father's will rather than his own or rather than the will of the people around him. The Father's will is more important than the people's will. And before teaching us about our daily bread, he taught that doing the Father's will is his food. It is his bread. So, again, I urge you, in light of this, meditate and pray meditatively the Lord's Prayer in light of all this. And let that be part of what you see as listening to our Lord in your own life. All right, I have an email here from Kathy in the great state of Mississippi. It says, Dear Father Mitch, I'm a fairly new convert. I grew up Baptist and always felt things were never consistent or grounded until I was introduced to the Catholic Church. That being said, I had a very bad experience on a recent Sunday when I knelt to receive our Lord in the Eucharist. <coughs> After Mass, when I was leaving, the priest reprimanded me for kneeling and made fun of me really badly, saying, where did you get that from? That is distracting. I didn't know what I did that was so wrong to be talked to that way. I see people kneeling during Mass on EWTN and other churches I visited. What's happened? I don't understand. Kathy, A, I'm afraid, uh, I, I hope, the, the, this priest, you get a chance to talk to him in another moment. That it's, right at that moment is probably not the best time. But I would go and speak to him and say, look, first of all, making fun of me because I am using a gesture of adoration of Jesus. This is my Lord. And I kneel down before him. And that's my act of ad adoration. You focus, uh, I would tell the priest myself, you may not want to do this, but I would recommend that he focus more on Jesus' presence there than distractions like you adoring Jesus and focusing on him. Kathy, I'm afraid that he's in the wrong. And you can also say to him that where you got that from was Pope Benedict. Pope Benedict said that people have a right to receive Holy Communion on the tongue and kneeling or standing and on the hand. That is up 
to the free will of the person who's trying to express adoration of Christ whom they're receiving in their heart. So, you know, pray for him first. But when you find a moment that is, you know, an easier, quieter moment, say, look, Father, I didn't mean to distract you. My attention was on worshiping my Lord. And, um, you know, and secondly, your lack of charity in the way you mocked me for that is not right. So that would be, so you did nothing wrong. And again, Pope Benedict did say you have a right to kneel down to receive our Lord. So don't be intimidated by that. I'm sorry that that happened. And hopefully that priest will get over himself there. All right. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of your questions and comments, so please stay with us. Welcome back. Um, first of all, I want to encourage you to join me for EWTN Live tomorrow. It'll be tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be speaking with Dr. Matthew Minard about the Catholic approach to war. These are important questions. Should Christians participate in wars? Should they join armies? And when, if ever, would a war be considered just? These are very, very important questions because we live in a very dangerous world and we have a lot of wars uh, still going on, especially, of course, in Ukraine. So we have to take a look at some of these. Uh, it'll be an interesting program with him. All right, let's. Go back to your email here. Uh, hello, Father Mitch. Would you please briefly explain the differences between Roman Catholic, Greek Catholic, and Greek Orthodox churches? Joseph from Los Angeles. Well, first of all, the similarity is all three, the Greek Orthodox, the Roman Catholic, and the Greek Catholic, uh, and other Oriental Catholics, uh, by Orient, I mean uh, people like the Maronites, Chaldeans, and so on, um, that those different communities all trace themselves back to the apostles. They're all apostolic churches. So that's one thing that we hold very much in common. That's why we believe that the uh, Greek Orthodox and the other Orthodox communities have authentic priesthood and authentic sacraments. They have the same seven sacraments as we have in the Roman Rite Church. Those are important similarities. Have the same Bible. We have the same canon of Scripture. Um, we're uh, as distinct from, say, the, the Protestant canon, 
which uh, has removed uh, seven books from the Old Testament. So, other, so we, we have those books in common, and that's there's important similarities and, and unity. But there is a difference. In the uh, Greek, let's start off with the Greek Orthodox. They have a number of patriarchs for each one of their communities. And the patriarchs are called autocephalic. What does that mean? It's Greek, of course. Uh, kephalos is the Greek word for head. And so each patriarch is independent in authority from the other patriarchs. And that they are all uh, equal in authority. In the Roman Rite, uh, Roman Catholic Church, unless you, well, yeah, the, the Western Catholic Church will call it, we also have a number of patriarchs, one of whom is the Pope. He is the patriarch of the Roman Rite, as well as Pope of the whole Church. But there are other patriarch, patriarchs. There's the patriarch of Babylon, the patriarch of um, uh, Antioch. The Patriarch of Venice is actually uh, the Patriarch of Alexandria. That's complicated. It's another history. But, um, but anyway, we have a number of Patriarchs. Patriarch of Jerusalem. These are all Patriarchs in the Catholic Church. And yet, the Pope is, rep represents Peter and has more authority than the other patriarchs and the other bishops. And yet, each patriarch does have authority within his own patriarchate. So, so we also have lots of patriarchs, but they're not autocephalic. They don't head their own churches with, is separately from the leadership of the pope. So that's one of the big differences. Now, there are a few, uh, and then um, among all those patriarchs are included the Greek Catholics. And there are a variety of them. There's the Melkites who use Greek and Arabic. And then, of course, there are the various Slavic ones. The largest of the Eastern churches is the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. But there's also the Ruthenians and a variety of others who are Greek Catholics, plus the, like I said before, the Oriental churches, the Maronites, Syriac Catholic, Chaldean Catholic, Syro-Malankaras in India, Syro-Malabar in India, the Coptic Catholics and Ethiopian Catholics and the Armenian Catholics. And there's probably some I'm sure I've forgotten, but those are, you know, part of the 22 different rites. But they're all, you know, part of the Catholic Church with Pope as head. So that's one of the big differences. In doctrine, you know, the, there was a problem in the Western Church where Arian heretics who denied the divinity of Christ and of the Holy Spirit were coming into Catholic churches and taking them over. They're pretending to be Catholic, wore vestments, all that, but they were Arian heretics.
denying the divinity of Christ and the Holy Spirit. So, in the Nicene Creed, they added a phrase, we believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, to emphasize that the Holy Spirit is God and that He comes from the Son because the Son is also fully divine, fully God. And the, the Greeks didn't have that difficulty. We were dealing with barbarians, especially in Spain and Italy, who were trying to take over Catholics and trick Catholics. And they used that, the Catholics used that as a way to um, deal with these heretics. And uh, of course, the Greek Orthodox say you can't add that phrase without it coming from an ecumenical council. Um, and there'd be various difficulties that they would have with it. So that's part of our ecumenical dialogue. Um, I don't think we have that problem anymore, but I'll let the people at the Vatican deal with all those more technical difficulties. Um, and those would be some of the differences. But otherwise, you know, you can go to any one of the Catholic rites and validly receive the sacraments, okay? You go to Maronites, Syriac, any, any one of the Catholic rites, the Armenian Catholics, all of them, you can go there and you receive the same sacraments. The Greek, the, the various Greek Orthodox and other Orthodox communions don't allow us to receive their sacraments. And so we have to have absolute respect for that. You don't try to sneak in. But if you are in an Orthodox country and cannot get to Catholic Mass, then you can attend the Orthodox liturgy. Again, you, they, they don't allow you to receive their sacraments. But you may attend and know that that is valid Mass and that fulfills your Sunday obligation if you cannot get to a Catholic church. If you can't get to a Catholic church, you go to that so you can receive the sacraments. But if you can't, then that's a fully valid liturgy, okay? But you don't substitute that. So that's some of the things. And then, let's take one more email here. Father Paco, our recently assigned parish priest has informed our Ladies Blue Army Rosary Group that we cannot say the rosary before Sunday Masses because of complaints from some of the parishioners. They state that they have their own way of praying before Mass. How should we handle this matter? We are praying about this. Cindy. Cindy, here's one of the things I would do. It's important that you pray before you get to Mass and, and praying the rosary before Mass. Matter of fact, at our parish, St. Elias, here in um, Birmingham, uh, the priests and deacons lead the rosary every Sunday before, uh, before the liturgy. And it's a good thing to do so. So what you can do is ask the pastor, is there an empty room somewhere on, in the parish plant where you could go and pray the rosary together? Maybe a Eucharistic chapel? maybe uh, a classroom, but ask him for permission to go. And then have him observe, do people actually take time in silent prayer before Mass? Or do some of them use that 
time without you praying the rosary to chatterbox. Are they using that to talk amongst themselves or are they using it for their own prayer? They're using the, and have people observe that and report to him after a few months and say, Father, they're just talking in there because that happens a lot. And I'm not talking about the little kids and the teenagers. It's the adults and the uh, seasoned citizens. You know, they're the chatterboxes usually. So find that out. But go to another room, continue praying the rosary, ask them for a place you can do so, so you don't disturb anybody. And then you'll, uh, then let's see what happens if people are praying in their own way before church. And if so, let them be and you continue going on. But if they're just chatterboxing, then ask, say, Father, why don't you let us back? We'll help to bring prayer back to the beginning of Mass. Okay? All right. Lord bless you all and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by His peace. Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We thank you for your support because this network is brought to you by you. And we ask that you continue to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and then we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. Thank you, and God bless you. Thank you.